With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Coming up on this week's episode of the Retro Hour podcast, a new full-size Commodore 64 that could be in your Christmas stocking this year. Also, how to hook up your N64 up to your modern TV. And we get the inside story on life at one of Britain's most legendary game companies, Rare. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 180, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. And me, Joe Fox. No Ravi this week, because he's, uh, he's on his travels at the moment, so just us two this week, Joe. I know, a bit jealous of him, travelling off, swanning off to uh, the south of America. Well, look at me and you here, though, Joe. I mean, you know, you're in a metal band and <laughs> I, I, I've had two coffees and I think this show could get a bit wild this it week. It could get a bit wild. <laughs> I've had a packet of crisps as well. <laughs> I've had an arrow, sugar Ooh. in me. We could wreck the studio. It's going down. I think someone's beating the steward looking around it. <laughs> uh, but I mean, when we're not in metal bands and eating crisps and chocolate and drinking coffee, we enjoy video games, which is what this podcast is all about now. Every week, people ask me what kind of systems we cover on this show. And generally, I say from ZX81, you know, the earliest like microcomputers in Britain, up to around PlayStation 2 era, which is a fair old era of video games to cover. That's a big, you know, 35 years we've got going on yeah. there. At least. So, at yeah. least, at least. And next week, we're actually going to be talking about something from the 60s. So, you know, that is pretty old school. That is pretty old school. That's <laughs> the furthest back, I think. We, is, that the, is that a retro hour first? Well, actually, no, we did talk about some um, the Colossus machine from World War II. So oh, okay. That was All pretty right. retro, 1945. That's pretty yeah. retro. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but generally, we talk about, you know, games that we grew up playing, because, you know, we've been lifelong video game players. And if we're talking about a British video game company, that really, I mean, especially here in Britain on the Nintendo systems. Rare was such a legendary company back in the day. Were you a big fan of Rare games? I love the Rare games. Um, you know, Donkey Kong, Banjo-Kazooie, Banjo-Tooie. <laughs> yeah. All of them, um, just Rare and Nintendo for 16-bit and then the 64-bit kind of era is just uh, it's just treasure. It's just gold. Golden work there. I can't even get my words out. I'm just like, <laughs> that it's all. that good. It's that good. So I'm super excited to uh, listen to this interview. Well, this is um, something that Ravi and I recorded a couple of weeks ago when we were at Retro Spill Messen in Norway. We recorded last week's show before we went, so I can actually talk about what it was like now. <laughs> it was great, though. It was um, quite an intimate show. Um, not on the, you know, the scale of like your play expos and that kind of yeah. thing. Much smaller, but really nice event. And the people there were like incredible. And one thing I really didn't expect, and I said the same about Pixel Heaven when I went to um, uh, over to Poland a couple of weeks ago as well, you don't expect to find so many retro hour listeners, like, you know, <laughs> in other countries around the world, especially non-English-speaking countries. But it must have 25, 30 people came over, listened to the show, and like... You know, there's just people there that could name things we did in like every episode. And, you know, in episode like 12, you spoke to so-and-so, so-and-so. And I'm like, how do you know this? Did we? <laughs> like, I can't remember what we had on last week. Uh, but, I mean, it, it was incredible. We, we were made to feel very welcome. And we actually did a little um, a little live stream. They were doing like a um, lot kind of interviews at a live stream room backstage. Yeah. And Ravi and I went back there and the organisers of Retro Spell Mess and sat us down for about half an hour yeah. on their stream talking about the podcast and the history of it and stuff as well, um, which we really enjoyed doing. So I'll put a link to that in our show notes this week. But on being on stage as well, one thing that really struck me compared to crowds here in Britain is 
how up for getting involved the audiences were. Yeah. Because we get it, you know, when we do shows in Britain, great crowds, really into the games and that, but you often get to the end and you, you might box off 15 minutes for a Q&A. And, and it lasts five minutes because everybody's yeah. awkward and they're just a bit <laughs> yeah. like, they kind of want to ask a question and then yeah. Ravi's got to run around with a microphone, you know. Yeah, they're all like, you know, and then we've got these questions that are like, you know, might sit in their hands like, should I? It's like when you're at school, isn't it? Yeah. You know? When you someone want, puts a hand up, you might. But. You, you want to ask something, but you're... Typical British, terrified of sounding yeah. like an idiot. <laughs> yeah, that stiff upper lip. Yeah. But then in Norway, you know, we, we had any questions. I think everyone's hand in the audience went up and were like, oh, we've only got time for about four. So there are an amazing crowd out there. And we did, um, you know, some great panels across the weekend. Last week, it was a story of Conker's Bad Fur Day mm-hmm. um, with Sean Pyle and Chris Marlowe. This week, it's a panel that we did on Sunday morning. And this is all about life at Rare. Now we had, it's an all-star lineup, Yeah, if you love Rare. David Doak, I mean, Goldeneye. Goldeneye. Legendary game. Chris Marlowe and Sean were on this as well. Uh, David Wise, um, Donkey Kong Country Series. Kevin Bayliss as well. I mean, we've had the rest of the guys from Rare on the show individually. But Kevin Bayliss, I mean, he's someone that we, we actually hadn't, haven't had on the podcast okay. before. Yeah. And obviously Killer Instinct. Yeah. Great beat-em-up game on the N64. So it's a one-hour panel, um, and they're all talking about what it was like working this legendary company, a little mm. insight into games and stuff as well. Really interesting. I mean, I think, you know, upon listening back to last week's show... It was one of the best interviews we'd ever done, I think. Well, a friend of mine yeah. commented um, and said that he thought last week, touching on Con- Conker's Bad Fur Day, was one of the best interviews we've ever had. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to seeing what people say about this one. Yeah, and I mean, you know, whenever we're around your house after a, a few drinks, it's always a GoldenEye in the N64. It's GoldenEye in the N64 every Christmas, like clockwork. It comes out, slaps. <laughs> I think it's because it's the only game Joe can beat me at. Well. Uh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get stories of Rare, what it was like working there in the golden era, coming up recorded live at Retro Spill Messen on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. Now, we have got some really good stories to talk about this week. Obviously, that full-size Commodore 64... That's been every way we need to chat about that. But before we do, we couldn't bring you this podcast every week without your support. Now, we did kind of say last week, and, you know, just worth reinforcing this, that there are lots of ways that you can help out this show. I mean, if you're on social media, you know, if you're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you're always putting pictures up on your Instagram, on the Retro Hour one as well. Yeah. Um, give it a like on there, give it a share, tag your friends in there. Yeah, definitely. Any way to get new people involved in the show. And also, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, leaving a review on there. So we often get people going, oh, well, you know, I haven't got an iPhone or anything like that. But the Apple chart is really like the, the definitive one for podcasts. For podcasts, it is. So it it's does top help. UK 40. It is. It pretty <laughs> much is, yeah. You put my DJ voice on. Um, but, but yeah, if you'd like to leave a review on that little five-star rating, it's always appreciated. And that'll get us in front of new people. Or you can help us out by putting a few quid into the jar as well, which um, goes back into the running of the podcast too. Any amount will earn you a shout in the very prestigious, come on, that metal drum roll. Hall of Fame, like this week. Thank you so much to Daniel Parkinson. Feature music. Y Chung. And Patrick McGinty. Who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, there's a little PayPal link. Or you can do it direct. It's paypal at theretrohour.com. Some people ask me now, can I do it direct from my phone? Um, or click on the supporters section of our website, theretrohour.com. Now, of course, last year, and it's continued into 2019, it was the year of the mini console. It was the year of the mini console. So we saw many last year. Yeah, we had the many Nintendo ups, ones. Many downs. Yeah, um, the Commodore 64 Mini. Now that was, um, it was something, I do remember that got, it was an Indiegogo campaign. And I remember it, it wasn't successful, but then they managed to release it eventually last year. I think jumping on the back of the, um, the mini console craze after Nintendo. Um, but there was lots of reviews. Um, you know, there's problems with it. 
the first thing was, I mean, the Commodore 64 itself was a computer. So you had this mini thing and the keyboard didn't work. The keyboard didn't work. And wasn't the main thing was a lot of the games are like press F12 or something to continue. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, great. So yeah. it doesn't even work. So you can't even play certain games on it. I stuff. mean, you can plug a USB keyboard into it. Okay. Um, and a mouse. And, you know, some games did support mice, I believe. Um, but then it kind of ruins that mini aesthetic. So a lot of people were a bit disappointed that the keyboard didn't work. And it had a few problems with the the firmware and the emulation um, that were ironed out in later mm. revisions. Like the American one actually ran, you know, a lot of stuff a lot smoother than the British version. Okay. Uh, but now, the thing that everyone wanted, and, you know, it was a worst-kept secret in retro computing, that there is going to be a full-size Commodore 64 replica that will be out in December this year. Okay. Now, there's a little trailer video. Now, if you get this link open, I put now show notes um, on Gizmodo. There is a trailer in there that they released on YouTube. And if you click play on this, and I'm just going to fade up the music, because I think the music on it's great. Now, they've got, like, a, a VHS video... Yeah. And they've got this music comes Ooh. in. It's very Stranger Things. And then it says the future, 2019 AD. And it's got kind of a, a post-apocalyptic landscape. <laughs> it reminds me of the opening to Terminator 1. That, I'm getting goosebumps, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I love uh, post-apocalyptic like films and stuff yep. like that. Uh, and that proper John Carpenter kind of like synth feel to it. So anything like that just kind of gets the hairs on the back of my neck stuck up. So straight away, it's usually somebody by mentioning the Commodore 64 or anything like that, I'm usually not too fussed. It's yeah, a yeah. little bit before my time, Ravi and Dan there, you know, frothing at the mouth <laughs> to talk about these things. And I'm just like, well, it's no Nintendo. You know, they've got me with the advertising there. That's the thing. It's actually... It's very high production values on it. Yeah. Um, and the flying over and there's all these like, you know, abandoned CRT monitors. And then kind of electricity comes over the old Commodore 64 and it's okay. like, it comes back to life. And then they're showing like the 64, the new model that's going to yeah, be out yeah, later yeah. this year. So looking at it, it's got a full keyboard on it. And it's also got the Commodore 64 had these little kind of, um, they call it Petsky. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of these little um, symbols that you could put into your, your programs and that kind of thing. It's got those on the front of the keys that like the original one did. The only thing is, um, they haven't actually showed the ports in this video what's going to be on it. Okay. But, I mean, in the articles, they do mention it's going to have an HDMI port, obviously, you know, to yeah. up to a modern TV. Um, it's going to have a, um, a couple of uh, USB ports on there, too. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I do like this as well. They say it maxes out at 720p. Some people are talking about that like it's a negative. You're probably not going to want to play Commodore 64 games in 4K. Yeah, let's get the sharpness of this game on here. <laughs> International Karate Hustler Crisp. <laughs> but they also are going to bundle in um, the um, joystick as well. Now, they're saying yeah. this is probably going to be an improvement on the one that came with the Mini, because a lot of people said that was really unresponsive. Yeah. Apparently, this one's going to be micro-switched. But the thing I'm getting out of this is, you know, I haven't seen the ports that are on it, but that's all that's mentioned. I'm just wondering why, if one of the main complaints about the, the Mini version was that the joystick was awful. Mm. Why didn't they put the old deconnected joystick ports on there and let you plug the old ones in? Just like you plug anything into there, you yeah. know, just get a Mega Drive controller or something. Could you do that with these six? Yeah, 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 cool. So, so that's, that's one thing that's kind of baffling. Like, you think that yeah. can't be that expensive. But then again, have any of the mini consoles done that? Yeah, I mean, they all generally just have USB controllers. I mean, you're right, yeah. I mean, yeah. the Nintendo ones had... I mean, it was a recreation of the original yeah. pads, wasn't it? But they were USB. But the fact that it, so many people complained about... Because, I mean, this, the 64 didn't actually come with a joystick originally. Mm. I mean, it was on sale till I think, 1995, the Commodore 64 okay. was discontinued, or 94. Um, and the later packs did have, like, a bundle cheater joystick. Yeah. But originally it was just, you know, 
your mum would go to like um, your local computer shop and buy the cheapest, nastiest joysticks. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I got you this for three pounds. <laughs> yeah, yeah well, cheers, mum. <laughs> I remember I had one, um, a Cheetah 125 joystick. Oh yeah. And I was playing a game, you know, a little bit aggressively, <laughs> waggling my stick. And the end of it came flying off and went waggling across the room. Waggling your stick. As, as I used to do regularly in my, in my bedroom as a younger man. Uh, <laughs> and then it went flying across the room. And that's how crap they were, you know. They, really? they weren't designed very well. But, I mean... When you got stuff like the Zipstick and the Competition Pro that are generally considered the best joysticks yeah. of the era, you think it makes sense just to let you plug one of those into this system. People and- still got them. People still collect yeah. them. People still sell them on eBay. So it would make sense. But the only thing I can think of is just the aesthetic of it. Like they just, I don't know, they don't want that on there. But then you could just argue stick it on the on the back. Maybe yeah. that'd be a little bit clunky. The 64 wasn't the sexiest looking computer anyway. No. <laughs> that, that, that brown kind of bread bin look. But it's cool that we're getting a full-size recreation of it. And it's going to be, um, I think the price tag on it's $110. So it's a bit more than the Mini, but when you consider that you are getting like, you know, a full computer a full for full size it. one, yeah. And it apparently runs VIC-20 games as well. It was a predecessor to the okay. the, um, the 64. So it um, looks a nice little package. So we'll keep an eye on that. Hopefully get my uh, hands on one when one comes out. Now, let's get into Nintendo, because it's been a really, actually, busy week for Nintendo news. And it seems like every week on this show, we're talking about Nintendo taking down fan projects. Now, did you see this game called Mario Royale? I saw a video about it, and I skipped over it. I didn't watch it, because I instantly thought, that's going to be gone within two or three days, because we know what Nintendo's like. They don't like anybody using anything Nintendo if you're not Nintendo. And everyone knows that. Everyone knows that, world. yeah. So to me, I mean, this kind of looks like someone's attempt to deliberately rile up Nintendo. Yeah. So this was a game that you could play in your web browser. Oh, yes. So, you know, open it on Chrome, whatever, type in the website, you can play it on there. It essentially turned the original Super Mario Brothers into a 75-player race. Yeah, so when I first read the article you sent over today, yeah, I was like, a battle royale game, like, you know, a royale game for uh, for Super Mario. And I was like, how would you fight each other? I didn't think it'd be a race to finish <laughs> straight away. I was like, actually, that's quite interesting. Yeah, it's a quick, we can get there. The yeah, quicker, the exit, the I guess. Uh, and, you know, it sounds loads of fun. I didn't actually play it when it was still up. Um, but then, obviously, as you'd expect, um, the cease and desist from Nintendo came in. Mm. And when they take games down, they issue what's called, I've got to get this right, it's a DMCA takedown. So it's Digital Millennium Copyright Act. Ah, uh, okay. I see where this is going now. It's a bit of foreshadowing being planted there. <laughs> and then, as soon as Nintendo give him this DMCA takedown, the game gets magically renamed, like, pretty much the next day, to DMCA Royale. That's brilliant. So I didn't know that. So that's quite cool, actually, because I didn't know what that stood for. So I'm, like, here reading the article, and I'm just like, what's, what's you know, skimming over it, and I'm just like, what does this mean, kind of thing. And he changed the sprites a little bit. So Mario yeah. got renamed to Infringio. <laughs> <laughs> and Luigi is copyright Infringio. Copyright Infringio. <laughs> so, and then, I mean, it was back online for a couple of days. Nintendo, again, unfortunately said, it's still too similar to our game. Yeah. Take it down now. Yeah. So it's gone now. I think just anything with that green pipe yeah. is just like cease and desist <laughs> straight away. But what is interesting is, thinking about why this guy did that, because he must have known that it was going to get taken down. Just for a laugh, I guess. Well, there's, there's a comment here on Polygon, and this guy here is saying he wonders if the reason he did this is to build hype on his game. Because we wouldn't be talking about it if that didn't happen. And like you say, people are talking about it. There's articles here with 
you know, hundreds of comments on it, and now here we are talking about it on, you know, the UK's number one retro hour podcast. <laughs> no, number one retro hour, yeah. <laughs> number one in, retro fact, hour. in fact, the only retro hour podcast. Uh, but yeah, I mean, these articles wouldn't exist if, like, Nintendo, that was a headline that Nintendo took this game down, yeah. and this guy kind of fought back and was like, ah, Nintendo. Yeah. Unfortunately, it looks like, I think he probably intended it to stay up as it was, yeah. DMCA, Royal. And expected that to be all right, and all the hype would go. On yeah, the game, and then you would get the hype from that, but they took that down as yeah, well. It didn't work to plan, unfortunately. But brave attempt, all the same. No, I want to play it. Yeah, so <laughs> do I. Now looking at it, so I'll be on the underground somewhere. Yeah, I bet, I bet Ravi knows a website. Oh though. yeah, Ravi's probably playing it right now. <laughs> <laughs> now let's talk a bit more about Nintendo because um, the N sixty four, a machine that you and I both love. Yes, and um, we talked before about our uh, you know gaming sessions around your place on Goldeneye. The only thing is, it's it's not easy to hook your N sixty four up to a modern TV. Mm, it depends how modern it is. So I have a nice big 50-inch, you know, uh, flat screen. So but it's about 10 years old now, yeah. so it's all right. But if you want to get that HD crispness for your uh, GoldenEye polygons, it's quite difficult, isn't it? Yeah. And I think, you know, people have reviewed HDMI ports and stuff in the past for the N64, but they set you back, what, $300, $400, don't they? Well, you're talking about Metal Jesus Rocks. Metal one, Jesus, they, yeah. yeah, he did one. Um, and you have to literally take the N64 apart, solder something to it, turn it into a bit of Frankenstein's monster, and then it's like, okay, brilliant, now I've got it, it works. But, you know, the problems come with them, they get knocked or something like that, you take it to move it into another room and then it doesn't work. But a bit of solder falls out. A bit of solder falls out, and if you're, not, if you're not inclined in that, if you don't know how to do that and stuff, getting it repaired is a nightmare. But we've got, is it the Super 64? Yeah, so this is, um, it's the world's first plug-and-play HDMI adapter for okay. the N64. Yeah. So unlike the other one, which um, I, I think it's called the Ultra Mod, the one that Metal Jesus Rocks is talking about. Yeah. From what I've seen, you have to like solder wires onto like the, the legs of the chips and stuff. Okay. Quite, you know, you need to be quite, quite advanced. finicky, yeah. Well, this one, though, just plugs into the um, the display port on the back of the N64. Really? Um, upgrades it to 720p. Okay. And then you can now put it to your modern day um, HDTV. It's also got like, um, there's some different modes in here as well, I believe, yeah. that can kind of sharpen it up or do anti aliasing, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. So in the N64, you know, a lot of people call it blur revision anyway, because it did yeah, kind of soften the image. It's got that, it? yeah. But it's $150. So a lot more affordable. But still expensive. It's still expensive. It looks quite nice as well. It looks quite like it's not too unofficial looking if that makes sense you don't look like you've you've you don't doesn't look like you've modded your n64 or anything like that it is just like a little add-on yeah it's pretty cool so 150 dollars so what we're talking about about 120 pounds yeah i so, mean you know I, I got my n64 for about 40 quid <laughs> it's yeah. a lot more than the console it's a lot more than the console um but then on the other hand if we wait another six months would an N64 Mini get announced? That's it, yeah. <laughs> that, that's the other thing a lot of people are saying, I'll oh, just wait for Nintendo to bring you know, the, Mini, the out Mini out. Yeah. Which, you know, it, it's bound to happen eventually. It's going to happen. Yeah, so um, actually looking at this, it's 480p, so I think it's a 720 before, 480p okay. it outputs that. But looking at this video that they've done, um, I mean, it's got like over 40,000 views at the moment, um, Eon Gaming, and they're showing Super Mario 64 running on it, and it does look really nice. Mm. And one thing you haven't got, I mean, there's no input lag there, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it kind of does help with that side of it because a lot of those games were quite precise you know and even a small bit of lag introduced yeah, can mess it can up it can change a lot of things um especially with that early 3d kind of like uh, we all praise mario 64 on how amazing it was the jump to 3d controls and stuff but it is 
like you say, that that ever so slight little nudge of the N64 analog control, that's it, you're off the edge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So it's good that it doesn't have that lag. That is good. Yeah, so I think there will be people who'll buy it, you know, the N64 connoisseurs who want it to look as best yeah. as possible. I just play it on the old CRT, you know, for me. Absolutely the same. Well, I've got the old the old plasma screen. <laughs> You're not fussy, Joe, are you? No, I'm I mean, not. As after, long as I'm playing it. After 10 pints aside, you can barely see anyway. So <laughs> <laughs> so if you do want to get hold of one of them, I'll put a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com. I wonder if you can plug it into a GameCube as well. We're talking about that because it's got the same port, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, the GameCube, the Super Nintendo, and the N64 yeah. have got the same port, so I don't... I don't know. I wonder if there's something going on in there to stop it from working, but... Then it might be worth 150 didn't you? Or, or, yeah. Or so, yeah, we'll keep an eye on Surely that. Surely they wouldn't miss that. Like, there must be a reason they've not mentioned it, because you would have thought that'd be quite a big, like, marketing thing for the, the guy who's made it. Yeah. You might so, be listening now, like, damn, should have done that. I should have done that. <laughs> like, oh, bloody hell, it does work on the SNES. <laughs> <laughs> now, the other big thing that happened um, in the last week, um, happened too late to get into last week's show, um, and it came as a bit of a surprise on Monday morning. I woke up and, you know, Twitter, I was checking my phone in bed in the morning, mm-hmm. email, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to get up half an hour before I actually get in the shower. But t- I do it the night it before. <laughs> There's new stuff in the morning, though. Oh, I guess so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> stuff across the pond. So... There was a little announcement that came out, I think it was around 7.30am last Monday morning, Yep. that a new Raspberry Pi has been released. Oh. Now, of course, I'm sure that anyone who hasn't been living under a rock for the last six years or so will know that the Raspberry Pi, it's a small little computer, um, costs about 35 quid, yep. and lets you do all kinds of stuff with it. I mean, the, the appeal for us is the fact that you can turn it into nice little retro gaming machines. There's a big market for it. You know, you can't, if you're into retro gaming, you can't go to any sort of event or very far on eBay, or even like Facebook marketplaces, without seeing Raspberry Pis advertised as retro consoles being sold for like a hundred to two hundred pounds. With like this one has a thousand games on it. Load of pirated has, ROMs. Yeah, lots and lots <laughs> of pirated ROMs. But they do work to a point where I do sometimes consider just saying, "Is it? Is do I just get this and just sell everything and buy another house or something?" <gasps> do you know what I mean? But. I, you know, just haven't brought myself to do that, by the way. <laughs> your, but, wife, your wife might hear this one day and be like, yes, Joe! <laughs> yeah, well, let's do it. But no, so what's what's different about this one? Enlighten me. Well, it's essentially more powerful. Okay. So the, the Raspberry Pi Model 3B, I believe, was the last one I got out of my hands on, which is probably about two years ago now, maybe mm-hmm. even three years ago. And there hasn't really been a significant upgrade okay. to it. I think the reason is because, you know, to keep it at that price point, They've got to wait till the technology becomes affordable enough to get yes. in there. Yeah. And now it seems like it has. So, I mean, you've got different SKUs of how much memory you want as well. I've got mm-hmm. the four gigabyte version, which um, okay. I think the original Raspberry Pi, the, the the first one, I think it had like something like 128 megabytes or something. Brilliant. <laughs> so it's quite an improvement, you know, yeah. over the years. Um, four gigabyte on here. It can support dual 4K displays now. Yeah, I just read that. That's yeah. uh, that's pretty impressive for that tiny little thing. Micro HDMI ports. It's got a more powerful processor that I think I read could, could be three to five times quicker than the previous model. Okay. Um, it's got USB 3.0, so it's you know um, for plugging in, plugging in like your peripherals and mm-hmm. external discs and that kind of thing. You're going to get really quick connection speeds. Okay. Um, gigabit Ethernet as well. That means um, connection to the internet's a lot quicker than it was in the yeah. previous model. It's got a USB-C power supply too, which seems to be the way that you know all phones are kind of going now, that new yeah. USB-C standard. The reason is, because I thought, oh, it's an, uh, paying so I'm going to have to buy a new power supply now. But this does actually take a little bit more juice than the okay. older models. All right. Um, probably because it's high spec. Yeah. But it's got all the other Raspberry Pi stuff in there, the camera port and the GPIO pin, so you can yeah. make your, you know, your weather station at home if you want. <laughs> but it's still actually got, I mean, it looks like a headphone jack 
on the side of it. Well, that's also a composite video output too. Oh wow! Okay. So for you know, if you want to make a, an arcade cabinet or yeah. you want to put it, I've got like one of these. Um, I think I've talked about it before on the show. Um, a monster joystick. Yeah. Where you put your Raspberry Pi inside the joystick. Yeah. And you've got um, micro switched arcade parts, and I've got like Mame on there and all these arcade yeah, yeah, ROMs. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know, for that, you can output that to your old CRT screen, okay. and it looks like the original game. So really, I mean, you're talking. A lot more performance for the same mm. price as the last model. So. I was going to say, it says here it's from $35, but that's going to yeah. be, you know, the, the, the lower RAM, the one gigabyte RAM and stuff like that. But I can't imagine it's going to shoot up that much in price. I did get... For the I, next model. I, I wish I could remember what I paid now. It wasn't much. I did get the um, yeah the four gigabyte version. I've got a feeling it wasn't too much more, though. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I looked. <laughs> I was just that excited about it. I, I, just it, bought it, it on basket, Monday morning. <laughs> because I know what happens when a new Raspberry Pi well, comes is, out. This is the thing. I remember the last one, and I remember you looking high and low for it. Yeah. And you couldn't get your hands on one. I remember. I remember it so well. And then... It was a magazine promotion at one yeah, point. Yeah. We'll they give one away for free. Going away, <laughs> going around WH Smith's and Asda, and you're looking for them. And some guy was like, "Oh yeah, we had like ten issues of that in this morning. One guy bought all ten. He's brilliant. Yeah, they're on eBay. <laughs> yeah. But one thing they're doing about this um, new Raspberry Pi, they're trying to sell it as kind of a desktop computer replacement. Which yeah, I thought was a bit weird. I, I'm looking at the advertisements for it here, and it's it's like it's like in an office. It's yeah. like oh, it's being used in an office, like with the two 4K screens, and they've got their cup of coffee and their banana, and it's just like. And I'm getting excited now. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, fair enough. But you do realise probably the only market I see of it, and anybody who I ever see mentioning a retro pie, is gaming computers, like using it for retro Or games. education. Yeah. Or education, yeah. yeah. Which originally was the market that the Raspberry Pi was intended for. It was okay. a replacement for like the old BBC micros and the yeah, Acorn yeah. machines. You know, it was like to teach kids how to program. Yeah. Which, which seems weird now. I wonder if that's like a... A decision their marketing department's made, like you know, um, it's more powerful now, so we can we can push it as a real computer kind of thing. Yeah, but, maybe. I mean, you look at the for the the size of the machine, it's powerful, but mm. you could probably run a PC from ten years ago with yeah. more power and buy it cheaper if you want that kind of I thing. I can sort of see where they're coming from because you've got all these schools of computer labs and everything yeah. now. When they're flogging these off for thirty five dollars, and a school needs a hundred of them, yeah, cheaper yeah. than buy Max and that. I guess, yeah, that yeah. yeah, there is that. So I can sort of see the logic behind that. Yeah, but get the education of the gaming market. You know, you're not you're not going to see these in banks and stuff. I don't no, think so. No. <laughs> if you do get hold of one, though, I mean, I think there are some stock stock again kind of coming into some websites today. When I looked, I, I bought the the motherboard. Mm. I bought a heatsink so I can overclock it a bit. I got the um, the official power supply because mm-hmm. you know trying to get one yeah. like a phone one's always a pain. <laughs> but I just missed out on getting the case. Oh! So literally, I, I think it was like one in stock, and I tried to buy it, and it gone. So, um, but it doesn't mean I'm going to have to run mine, you know, without the case and the uh, the naughty naked nude for the oh. next couple of weeks. Like, uh, like older ones. So, I'll have, a, I'll have a video out by the time this comes out, hopefully <laughs> as well. So, uh, X-rated. <laughs> so uh, that's all the stories we've got for you this week. Everything we've talked about, I will put in our show notes to save you googling. I do that every week. You can find them all at theretrohour.com. And right now, let's get into our all-star rare panel. Recorded live at Retro Spillmessen in Norway a couple of weeks ago, talking about life at Rare. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Retro Spillmessen. Now, my name's Dan Wood. I'm Ravi Abbott. And we host a weekly retro gaming podcast from the UK, um, The Retro Hour, which you can see on the screen there, all the details. And you can get it from wherever you normally get your podcasts from or our website, theretrohour.com. Our show comes out every Friday, and uh, we cover the retro gaming news that's been happening in the last week. But then I think the main feature on our show 
is that we have a special guest on every week. Now, these are veterans of the video games industry that we talk to every week, the people behind the games and the companies that we grew up playing. And that's exactly what we're doing at Retro Spill Messing today. So we're going to be talking about, for the next hour, one of the most legendary British video game companies of all time, um, responsible for games like Donkey Kong Country, Killer Instinct, GoldenEye 007, Perfect Dark, Banjo-Kazooie. So please welcome David Doak, Chris Marlowe, Sean Pyle, David Wise, and Kevin Bayliss talking about Rare. Now, just as a brief introduction, I thought it might be quite nice, just really briefly, if we can start with you, David Wise, at the end, uh, just kind of introduce yourself briefly and tell us a little bit about what you did at Rare. I make the tea. I used to make the tea at Rare. And uh, no, no, seriously, I, I actually um, I was responsible um, for some of the music at Rare. So, um, yeah, musician, sound design and that kind of stuff. And uh, that's what I do. And uh, this is Kev. Morning, everyone. Uh, I uh, clean the cars and wash the windows and do the washing up and drink the tea that Dave makes. Now, I uh, make graphics animation and now I actually work at Platonic Games now doing the same thing as I did 30 years ago, but uh, just with the same old boys that I worked with at Rare at the time. So, uh, Yeah, I'm Sean Pyle. Uh, so I was a senior software engineer, but as we really are, a programmer at Rare. So I started in 97, I think, or 96. It was 96, thank you, Chris. Um, so, yeah, I just wrote the code um, that makes the games work. So, uh, that's me. Hi, I'm David Doak. Um, I was initially at Rare as system manager. So, I used to crawl around under all these guys' desks, banging my head and sticking leads in. <laughs> and then I moved on to Goldeneye. So, I was designer and bit programmer on Goldeneye and then uh, there for, for half of Perfect Dark. My name's Chris Marlowe, senior software engineer at Rare for 23 years non-stop now. Uh, working on games from Conker's Bad Fur Day all the way through Connect Sports and finally on to Sea of Thieves, which is the latest project I'm on. Well, Kevin and David, you were there in the kind of early days in the mid-80s. What was it like there working at the time? Uh, what was it like in the mid-80s? Uh, well, <laughs> Dave and me would come in in our shoulder pads and uh, <laughs> new romantic sort of style. <laughs> in costume and uh, yeah it was a it was very there was there was only a few people at rare at that point i think when i began there was about eight people at the company and and dave i think you were uh, freelance yeah i, I was freelance at, at that point and you're right it was just like the 80s it was like something from back to the future <laughs> so that'll give you an a idea. really bad version of back to the future well, Chris, I know you, um, from reading other interviews with you, you were a fan of Ultimate Play the Game, which was Rare's predecessor. Years before you worked at Rare, did you realise this was the same company when you went to work there? No, it was quite embarrassing, really. Yeah, so I was a massive fan of the uh, Ultimate. Uh, my first uh, console was a ZX Spectrum, and, uh, uh, you know, I got it for Christmas, and the first four games I got were all Ultimate games, like Transam, Attic Attack, Jetpack. Uh, so I, I was fully instilled and I, w I got every Ultimate game when they came out, absolutely loved it. Uh, and then when I went to university and um, when I was looking for a job afterwards, I, I then just I got a copy of Edge and then just went through every single advert at the back, just, you know, just phoning up directory inquiries, getting the number of the company. Uh, not even knowing it was in America or UK, I, I really managed to annoy the... Uh, <laughs> the, the director inquiry uh, person because I got to know them quite well because I kept phoning it up and it was free uh, from a payphone back in the day and then the <laughs> and the uh, yeah I finally got uh, an interview and 
I literally, it wasn't until I turned up in the train station, I went, I recognize this. <laughs> oh my God, this is like where I, one, it was, uh, it was near where I lived. And I had no idea they, they were based just down the road from me. And then, um, and then when I got there, I was looking at, uh, I was having my interview, I was sitting down ready to go and have my interview. I was looking around on all the walls. It's just every single game they've ever done. I was going, oh my God, this is ultimate. Oh my God. And of course, when I went in, I was going, oh yeah, yeah, I'm a big fan, big fan. Yeah, I've, I've loved everything. <laughs> you exactly what I was doing. This is one that, you know, Kevin and uh, David Wise might be able to answer a bit more, because this was like, you know, the early days of Rare. I remember, we're talking about Ultimate Play, the game, they focused on the ZX Spectrum, which was a big home computer platform in Britain. But then Rare came along, and it was mainly the, you know, the consoles, like Nintendo, the NES, which at the time seemed like they were bigger in America than they were in the UK. Was there a reason that Rare focused on the Nintendo rather than the home computers? Uh, I think the... Tim and Chris have thought that they'd taken it pretty much as far as it, the the video game industry was going to go with those 8-bit machines, the 64 and the uh, Spectrum. I think that there were new machines coming in, but the, the market was very different in the UK to how it was in the Nintendo. And the Nintendo, the NES had just been released and it was... It was actually being really successful machine after a bit of a flop with the video game market in the in the, in the states, and so I think they just saw an opportunity there, and uh, they took a cartridge I think and backwards engineered the the code from that cartridge and and I think they put together RC Pro Am and. They showed that to the guys at Nintendo, and uh, they were so impressed with it. It's like, you, okay, you, you can write for our systems. So they, they built up a really great relationship with Nintendo from then on. And uh, yeah, I, I'd never heard of Nintendo at all. I, I was just 64 and ZX Spectrum all of the way. And when I saw it, I didn't know what the machine was, but I was just amazed by the... I thought the graphics were a lot better than what you got on the, con, on the home computers that we were using. I didn't like the sound so much because I loved the SID chip on the Commodore 64. I just loved the music. But uh, as, as a whole, the machine, it was a really solid machine. And uh, it was the first thing I'd got the opportunity to work on anyway, so I was happy to work on anything. So it was cool. Yeah, and obviously, with the although we didn't realize at the time, the, the NES had this huge potential over in America, which was why they were directing their efforts to reverse engineering the, the units break into that market. And as Kev said, they really they'd asked for dev kits, but they they didn't have dev kits. It was totally in house. And as Kev said, they they, they took this cartridge, reverse engineered it, uh, rocked over to Nintendo to show them, and that that's how they managed to break in. Fortunately, so it panned out quite nicely. Well, Rare was founded by Chris and Tim Stamper, and there's a lot of kind of brothers in the '80s video game scene, and in especially with British games companies, and they were a bit of an enigma, and they kind of still are. They don't do many interviews. What, what were they like to work with? Uh, yeah, well, Chris was the quiet one and Tim was the angry one. It was, it was kind of the... Uh, <laughs> was the simple way. So Chris did uh, all the programming and he was super quiet and he would come in, you know, and uh, you discuss something. Yeah. When I, sp- I began, I'd had no guidance uh, how to make graphics, no um, previous experience, and so I was in an office with Tim on my own, so I got to work with him sort of hands-on, and we'd sit there with the radio on, and He'd come and say, you're doing the right thing, but you're going the right, wrong way about it. And so he would show me how he would do it. And he was very good at sort of putting you in the right direction. And he knew that you knew what, what was required, and, but he would show you how to do it. And he would show you, he'd always do it better than you would, which was a little bit annoying. But, um, you know, he was, he was my mentor, really. So uh, a lot of respect for him. And he's, uh, 
a very good artist, of course, too, because not only all of the artwork that appears in the video games, he did all the, um, the, the box art for uh, all of the Ultimate games, but it, around the studio, there's a lot of artwork, airbrushed artwork that Tim had done, put together on the walls and frames, and you'd look at them and say, oh, that's really good. That's like something you'd buy in a shop. It looks really good. And I was like, oh, Tim did it. Just, Everything's got Tim written at the bottom. So... <laughs> Well, there's rumours about them like being workaholics and working 18 hour days, seven days a week through then? Yeah, we, we, all, we all did, to be fair. Um, I think uh, it was just the way. I mean, when I got there, I couldn't drive, so I was stranded in the middle of the countryside and waiting for my lift home, which was usually nine o'clock in the evening. And uh, Tim and Chris's younger brother, Stephen, would drive me home. Like, Come on, Kevin, you finished yet? And he would take me home, and then in the morning I'd be in there again about half past eight, and then the same would happen again. And then at the weekends, I mean, people had moved down to the middle of the countryside to work at Rare, and they'd often moved away from their friends and family, so there wasn't a lot else to do other than work. And so, although you, you call it work, it, it wasn't really work, it was a bit of a family environment there. Even when it was a, a small company, even when it was a large company, we all had the same interest. And so, at the weekend, well, you, you can come in and, and play a bit of a game and, and create a game, have a bit of food, and it just that was your weekend. It was a slightly different pace to what it would be at the week, but it, it never really felt like work. So, there was also a lot of car washing as well, as I remember on Saturday mornings. Best, best place they, to get your they car had clean. the best car wash thing machine it, it, long before anybody else did and it could really uh, clean your car so that was always a good incentive to go in at the weekend because your car got clean i'm sure it wasn't purposely designed honestly but the the way that when we were in the old farmhouse there was just one road there was one lane that you went up to and then the main car park so obviously that that got filled up completely and also parking all the way down to almost the road. So if you wanted to leave at five o'clock and your car was at the other end of the car park, you'd have to ask 40 people to move their cars to get out of the way. So invariably... Uh, you'd be afraid to do that because it yeah. looked like you wanted to go home first. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. But do you I, want I to move just, the car? Why do you want to move the car? I was just going to say about the stampers, because um, again, like Chris, Ultimate, when I found out it was rare... I found out before and it was like that's where I'm going to go and I was still at university and then I applied and and to me my recollection of Tim and Chris is I I was sat doing some work and Chris Stamper came in and I thought it's Chris Stamper oh my god you know and he sat on my desk and just goes oh how's it going Sean you know what you're working on and it's like I've got to explain to Chris Stamper what I'm doing you know as a coder which was was just totally intimidating but I mean he was a great guy and Tim was just really enthusiastic about what you were doing, um, you know. And it, he was kind of the artistic side of the brothers. Um, and it, they, were, they were just good to work for. The, my favourite memories of Rare are, are the sort of the Stamper era, definitely. Um, once it was Microsoft, it became a bit more, you know, you didn't know who was running stuff, so... I just want to say one thing about them. Um, they were so enthusiastic about games... You know, and you know, was, I remember when I was when I was leaving, they were kind of like, it's like well, you, why, 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 you, why do you want to leave? You know, this 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 place we have here is completely made to do what you want to do. Um, and another thing that became clear to me when I ran Free Radical was how much they protected us from all of the other forces. That you know, because famously, games get schedules get messed around, budgets get messed around, things get cancelled and stuff. And and it rare they really fought the corner for the teams. Do you, do you think part of that being out in the countryside, uh, the isolation helped the focus and 
kind of everybody feeling like camaraderie with a project and yeah i mean it was very much a, it's a little community i mean you know looking back on it there are things which were bad i mean you know we we worked excessively long hours you know but it was born out of passion. I mean, we've spoken about crunching things, yeah. you know, like, you know, we, we catch up and stuff. And the thing about all of that stuff is that certainly at Rare, um, it's actually quite addictive once you start doing it. And when you're working with people who trust on small teams, you know, you see other people doing stuff and it's, it's almost like magical things happen. So um, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a, it's, a, it's a hard problem that because some of the, you know, some of the things that made our games great were just the amount of time and, 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 and being there nearly all the time to make them. Um, it's, um, it, you know, I, I don't think there's an answer to that yet because when you see something that's really, really good, it often means that people have put excessive amounts of their life into it. You know, so. Also, when we say we're out in the country, we are out in the middle of nowhere. Absolutely no. There is no going out at lunch and nipping out to the post office. It doesn't happen. There is nothing for miles. It's, there's a zoo. Yeah, we can yeah. go to the zoo. Can I, can I just say, um, another thing I just remembered, and we talked about this the other day, I knew I'd remember something. It was one of the interesting <laughs> things about working at Rare, uh, particularly working hands-on with Tim, it, wasn't, it didn't just stop with uh, video games because he was such a creative guy. And we were having a talk and a laugh about it the other day. He'd got designs on uh, a hi-fi system, uh, motorcycles. Uh, he, had, he was into Shire horses, and so he had his own stamp of Shire horses thing going on. He was a great carpenter. He made a lot of the furniture at, at Rare, and so he was a really creative guy. And uh, at one point... We were talking about it the other night. There was um, an arcade board that Chris put scaled down into a tiny handheld sort of video game console, and we called it the Playboy. And it was <laughs> it was a fantastic machine, and we had the whole arcade running on it in full colour on the what was called the Raz board. And we had it was um, Plock running, wasn't it, by Pickford Brothers? Uh, was running on there, and it would look fantastic. The problem was, it was the size of an 80s mobile phone. You know, these great big ones that you... you it was about this size. And um, so you'd hold it, and you'd turn it on. It's like, look, look, it looks amazing. Oh. And it, that was the problem with it. And it was bright red, and it was a great-looking little machine, but there was always something like that going on as well. So as well as the games, Tim would always have something else on his desk going on. So, oh, yeah, we think we're going to do this. We're going to do this uh, board game. You know, lots of things like that that was always going on in the background. They also have quite an interesting way of running the company, as in, uh, I've never known it in any other place where, so um, certainly when we were back in the farm, uh, they actually had barns. They were literal barns of, of a farm. There's farmhouse and barns that were all converted. And the, we were split up into four or five teams, but every single team was run like a separate company, as in they were all top secret to each other. And they, there was no encouragement to like, talk or, or, or cross-feed information or share tech because they had a they, their, their, their feeling was if we all share ideas and look at each other the games are all going to end up being samey that you know we'll end up just doing similar games so we will be if we keep everything independent there, there's going to be there's going to be drive there's going to be competition so it was it was a really interesting way of doing it i mean it didn't help so we couldn't share tech but there was we re, reinvented the wheel an awful lot at rare over and over again but it did mean that each product was very unique and there was quite a bit of 
rivalry to get the, the best product out, which kind of was a motivational thing. Well, in those formative years, I mean, it was a lot of licensed games at first. I know, Kevin, you were working on stuff like, you know, Beetlejuice and, and Nightmare on Elm Street and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, was it a case then of just trying to get the company established and just pump out a load of games as many as you could? Yeah, we, we were trying to grow the company. Tim and Chris were trying to grow the company. We were employing a lot of people to work on... I think we did some of the micropros, uh, the pirates, and um, silent service, and a lot, a lot of licensed games that were new to the company. They had a conversion ready and set to work on, and so before you knew, it, we had about 20 titles going, and, and the company was sort of doubling in size every sort of six months. So it grew quite a rate. And and then, as you say, we, we talked about it yesterday. We we decided we wanted our own. Uh, identity, and so that's when we came up with the Battle Toads, and we sort of left all of the licensed material. Then it was it was nice because you knew where you were with all the licensed stuff. It's like this is Beetlejuice, this is Roger Rabbit. I know what I'm doing with this. It was really exciting to get all of the the scripts. This when we, I remember we got the script for Goldeneye, didn't we? And it was sitting there, and, and straight away Tim was writing back to them. I think this watch is a great idea that you've got in the film, but it would be great if it's a Game Boy, and so the typical kind of thing that we'd do. But um, yeah, it was um, it was great to get all of that, that stuff from the licensed projects and um, to be able to then work on it. I mean, Goldeneye came about ten years after the film, anyway. But it didn't matter. It was a good game. Uh, yesterday we did a panel on Battletoads, and I think it was 1993. Basically, three were released uh, in that year alone. So was that a really important franchise for Rare? Yeah, I mean, how many different titles were there now? We've got the, the Game Boy version, the Super NES version, we've got the arcade version, we've got the original NES version, so it, it worked, what, everything we wanted to do. There was a little bit of merchandise, there were some toys made, like Battletoads Bendems, I think. They're quite, quite, that's what they're called. And I look at those on eBay now, and they go for about $100 each, because they were quite rare. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's, it, I think it was successful. And they said a reboot now too, of course, which is great. So Let's talk about Donkey Kong Country. I mean, that was a huge game on the Super Nintendo. Um, over 8 million copies sold worldwide. It seemed like a next-gen game. So I remember the adverts, were like, it's not 64-bit, it's not 32-bit. And you use that really impressive technique of doing pre-rendered 3D graphics. So that was called advanced computer modeling. Explain a bit about what that was and what, where the idea came from. Advanced computer modelling. We had a lot of these acronyms, didn't we? Um, were there any more? Rare dynamic animation. Yeah. That was the next one. RDA. Um, whereas before, we'd draw the character on paper and we'd pixelate it, and then we moved on from pixelating it and decoding it to having an actual editor, which was like um, using, I guess, a very, very primitive version of Photoshop. Um, it was all 2D. We, we invested in the 3D uh, software, which was called Power Animator at the time. It's now, it's evolved since then, and it's now called Maya, or Maya. So you'd build a wireframe model, and the computer would generate, uh, it would transfer all of these curves into tiny, tiny triangles, and, and the light would hit all of the squares and triangles, and it'd create a, a solid shape. And we point a camera at it, and the camera then makes a rendered image of uh, a 3D ape or a 3D collection of shapes to resemble an ape. We move them around, and as soon as the light was hitting it and, it, and the shadows would appear, it looked very solid. And so, those were then 2D images, which we would have a, an alpha channel, so there was a mask around it, and it, it became a sprite. And so we just lay those sprites, played them as animation, and basically you'd got a, a small film show of everything that you were making in 3D. And it did, it looked like it was actually real-time rendering, but it 
Of course, it wasn't. It was all sprites. This was one of the incredible things that uh, Chris and Tim, they, they made a real leap of faith and they invested heavily not only in the new the latest software but also the latest hardware all the indies and things that the all the sgi machines silicon graphics that um these machines were hugely expensive and they were quite rare and literally the only place that had more uh, of these machines was Pixar, which were doing a little thing called Toy Story at the time. So whilst they were developing Toy Story, we were doing the, um, the this the same rendering technique uh, and turning it into video games. And uh, one quite funny story is that uh, at one point the Ministry of Defence had to contact Rare to say, "Why do you have all these these basically supercomputers all what sitting? What is that you're building in, in your in basically like a a bunker?" <laughs> A secret lair in the middle of the countryside. Are you planning to try and take over a third world country? And it was going, no, we're actually making video games. Okay. And that, it's, it's interesting that, because I, I was, at the time, I was uh, doing postgrad, so I, I was doing science research, um, and my field was molecular modeling. So the, in, the, in the lab where I worked, I used silicon graphics to look at molecular models. And, and, and then as part of my job, I, I looked after the other silicon graphics machines around in, 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 in the building. So in this quite well-funded, it was Oxford Centre for Molecular Sciences, internationally recognised, funded, you know, cutting-edge research institute. Um, I think we had about, uh, over the whole site there was, that I was responsible for, there were probably about, I don't know, half a dozen, eight SG machines. And they were the, and they were the fairly cheap ones. So the cheap ones came in at about £25,000 each. And I went to Rare to look after, so like, yeah, that's right, and the software, so the, a, a license for Maya was like 6K a year, or what was Power Animator at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. So but when I went to Rare, and I got the job at Rare because I knew how to look after certain graphics machines. And when I turned up, kind of day one, it's like, well, you know, how many are there to look after? So, well, basically, all the artists have one. So there's like I don't know, there's probably about I don't know, like thirty or something around the place, and we've got we've got those big ones, the ones that look like big blue fridges that cost like you know two million or something. We've got a couple of those, and we've got and we've got these other ones, and uh, they had amazing names like Death Star. Yesterday I mentioned the Death Star. Yesterday, the Death Star, yeah, the Death Star. Death Star. And then there was Jabba and stuff, but it was great. I mean, it's like so these guys had like you know. In, in, in research, in, in, in a top institution, they didn't have the money to buy these things, but Rare was just full of them, you know. Well, well it impressed Nintendo so much that they kind of bought a 49% stake in the company. How much did that change things? And when Nintendo came to Rare, what well, was bought, the reaction bought, like? Was it, was it kind of like, we all have to behave now, <laughs> suddenly? Or? Um, I, don't, I think it really changed when Nintendo got involved at all. It was... Uh, they they invested and because they they liked what we were doing and they already had been working with us anyway for years and so we had a great relationship with them didn't change at all um i think um maybe we saw uh, saw a few more visits um, we got um i can remember ken lobb came over and got heavily involved in killer instinct and some of the other guys uh, were sent over quite regularly and i think the this was a different area i, th- I think we moved on from Usually it was somebody from Trade West or from LJN Toys or from Acclaim coming over to check on the licensed um, games that we were producing. But then it would just be Nintendo people coming to visit us because everything we were doing was just Nintendo then, wasn't it? 
but yeah, the, the, the structure of the company was exactly the same and, and the working process was the same. Well, David Doak, you mentioned that you joined Rare in 1995, originally as a systems admin. So how did you go from doing sysadmin to working on GoldenEye? Well, I, when I started, I, I loved it at the start, but it was, it was really strange. So one of the things that was strange about my job was that I kind of had access all areas because I had to go to see people in the machines and stuff. So that was, that was, it was a peculiar role because only people who were kind of like management could do the same, the same thing. So I, could, I kind of saw a lot of what was going on and, and it was also great for getting to know lots of people. But I've been doing it for about three, four months and I, it, it was just, it was becoming really strange because it was like, I think I say to people, it was like working at, in Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, but you're the guy that replaces the fuses or something. <laughs> so you'd go around and you know, they'd be there with the exploding gobstoppers and stuff. And you're going, oh, that's, re that's really cool. So what, what, oh, the, 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 the plugs come out of this. Can you fix that? Um, and, and, and I was going to leave. It, 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 kind of, it was weird because I, I enjoyed being there and the people and stuff and things, but it was kind of like, I can't be on the other side of the glass. So um, I, was, I was going to leave and, and, and some friends kind of faxed me a joke job application for something to, which came through to the office at Rare, which was something that you didn't normally do. And the idea of anyone there. So I was, it was immediately, Dave, can we have a word with you? Um, and I said, well, it's just I can't, you know, I think I, I, think I will leave. Um, you know, no offense, whatever. Um, and then Martin Hollis had said, well, don't, you know, well, other people said as well, but Martin said, no, he can come on GoldenEye. He can probably help out doing something. I'm not sure what it is yet, but he can come and help Change out. the fuses. Change the fuses, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, so, so then I was on Goldeneye um, and, and stayed for... Well, originally it was meant to be an on-rails shooter as well, wasn't it? And then it, it, did that change? Yeah, well, it, I mean, by the time I was involved, it was first-person movement and, and all the systems were in place. But the initial design for Goldeneye was that it would be something like Virtual Cop. Um, so an on-rails character. And, and despite the fact that, obviously, the N64 didn't have a light gun, yeah, but it was, but you're going to use the you know the the thumbstick to move the reticule around and stuff, um, and I think it was it was and it was presented at Shishinkai show I think as with this kind of like on rails footage. But it, it, I think Martin was saying it's like they did, did the whole thing you know spent spent all of the time building the pipelines and getting everything to the game, get it all working, and then everyone's kind of having that sitting around going, well, is it fun? It's like well, to be honest, it's not much fun. And I was like, well, yeah, well, then they decided to make it, make it, um, you know, first person um, and, and, and have player control. But one, I think one of the really interesting things about it is, is that a lot of the stuff in GoldenEye, which was seen as being kind of moving stuff forward technically in terms of a, a first person games, like the character reactions and people running for alarms and all that kind of stuff, a lot of that comes from the kind of set pieces that you get in Virtual Cop. So it was like, you know, translating that into a, so a lot of the AI work, I think, benefited because of the way that the development explored a different path, first of all. One of the most famous features about GoldenEye, I'm sure, like anyone had an N64 back in the day remembers getting all the friends around with the four controllers and the, the split-screen <laughs> multiplayer games well into the early hours of the morning. But that was actually a bit of an afterthought, wasn't it, the multiplayer? I think it was always something that was wanted to be done. It was always on the wish list of things you could do. And obviously, you know, the, the N64, you know, it had the four controller ports. So it was obviously, you, you know, that, that was something that was going to be possible to have local, local multiplayer. Um, and we used to play a lot of, um, you could play Doom on the SGIs. So that was the thing that we kind of would play a lot of. And I'm not sure how complicit Tim and Chris were with it. I don't, or I don't know if you know anything about how complicit they were that we were doing it. But, but it did seem that it was kind of done outside of the scope of what management were watching. 
because we were the, the game was late, as Kevin was said, it, it was supposed to have come out, you know, like a year before, or whatever. Um, but Duncan Duncan Botwood and Steve Ellis basically split off from the team and sat in a room and made multiplayer, and and we never really showed it to anyone senior until it was done, and it was like, oh well, is this? Um, I particularly remember Ken Lobb coming over. So Ken Lobb was the our big contact at Nintendo of America. And Ken Lobb would come over and check up and things and stuff. And, and we'd always kind of hinted to him that maybe it was possible. Um, but it was like, you know, it's not going to happen because you're really, really late. I remember coming in. We said, Ken, we've got something to show you. And we walked in and, and we had a, a, a dev kit up, but there were four controllers in front of it. And he said, oh, you guys, you guys, you guys. Um, and, 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 and the thing about the multiplayer for the team was that it, it became, once the multiplayer was in, that there was, at Rare, there was almost like this kind of like internal black market in GoldenEye ROMs. So, so Mark, Mark Edmonds used to send them out. Because you know, this weird thing where you know, we didn't look at others' games. Once people knew that there was a, a good multiplayer thing, it started getting sent around all the company. Was that where stuff like uh, you being inside the game as Dr. Doak or like Big Head Mode or stuff like that came from? Well, all of that stuff, all of the cheats and things were just, you know, just trying what we could do. So that, yeah, and, and then, it, yeah, it's quite funny to make a Donkey Kong mode, obviously, with, with, with a big, big show and stuff. So, but everyone, everyone on the team, and a lot of other people at Rare, a lot of the kind of, like, other, other staff as well, like, um, you know, the technical staff and, and, and support staff are in, in the game as heads. Um, the Dr. Dote thing came about because I had a character, I mean, because I was a scientist, my character was in the game. We had an objective with a scientist in it. And I kind of put it in just as a, well, it's got to have some name, put it in mind, thinking, well, this will get taken out for sure because it's just not something you do. Um, and sure enough, Tim said, okay, that's coming out. Yeah. Um, and, and we were naughty. We were, we were a bit kind of naughty schoolboyish as well because it was that kind of environment. It was a very institutionalized environment, you know. So, so when somebody told you to do something, you would kind of like, mm, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll do it. But you know, under duress, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be bothered. Um, and I think, I think it was Martin who snuck it back in. So it got changed, so my name wasn't on it. And then as we were getting closer to deadline or getting closer to having a, 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 a submission candidate and whatever... Um, Martin put it back in again one day and I think as these guys were talking the other day it's like when you get to that kind of lot check thing that somebody's going to go and make a couple of hundred thousand first run cartridges you don't want to be messing around late in the day with changes um, and I think when it got noticed again and it's like well that's back in again how'd that get back in it has to come back out again we're going yeah but it, we've done all the localization now so, you know it's going to have to go back out to localization and it's like yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do it it's like okay well yeah just Leave it, leave it in. Yeah. So I think that's the story of how it happened. I mean, I, people ask me, and I retell that story. But I think that's pretty, pretty much how it happened. I was going to say about the, the multiplayer thing. So Team Conquer, or Bodge, as we were known, <coughs> we used to take drops of, of the ROM and play multiplayer. And we had one guy on the team who always played odd job. You know, it's the little diddy, you know, because it really kind of ruins it if at five o'clock till six was game time for us. So we're playing it and it was just getting on our nerves. So I went to Martin Hollis and I said, look, he's always picking odd job. You know, can we do something about it? And he sort of went, we'll make the hits bigger. So he got Mark Edmonds to make the hit box on odd job bigger. Then he took that ROM and it was only one ROM and he put it back onto the guy that always played him, his machine. So on his machine, he looked normal, the normal size. But on everybody else's, we all knew that he was bigger. And it, and it, it was just that sort of background. You know, 
we would just change it, but we would secretly drop it onto the guy's machine. He didn't know what we'd changed and whatever. And, and that was what we used to do, you know, just get up to. But we knew these guys really well. You just went round and went, can, can we do something? We probably got them to change the fire rates and all sorts of stuff. But, I mean, within about 10 minutes of this happening, the first game, he's like, bloody hell, this is rubbish now. I'll, I'll get hit all the time, you know. And it was, I wonder why. It was an exciting day when we also discovered the command that would allow you to play any sound file on anybody's machine remotely. Yeah. So, so you can imagine... What we got up to with that, where we'd suddenly go, oh, he's got this command. And then someone would just be in the middle of a meeting or something important with Chris Tim and some, something incredibly rude would suddenly start coming out of the speakers and you see the panic in their eyes as they're trying to, what the, what the is this? You, you could also change the volume. So you knew that they'd popped up the volume controller and you could remotely do this with it. And they're trying to get it with the mouse. <laughs> Well, obviously, you've been a second-party developer for Nintendo. I mean, you had access to the, the N64, the Ultra 64, as it was called, hardware. And that, you know, the system got delayed quite a bit. And I know, Kevin, you were working on Killer Instinct for the N64 at first. Did the delays of the Nintendo 64 hurt Rare, and did it cause you guys any headaches? Uh, well, I, we still had a game to, to produce. We, had to, we wanted to finish Killer Instinct. The other guys were still... Um, we, we, we branched the the teams off. We'd now started production of Donkey Kong Country, um, but there was still a small team that were working on Killer Instinct, and I think there was about seven of us all together on the team at one point, so there was a lot of graphics and a lot of um, motion capture to take, and so we were, we were really focused on that, so I don't think it affected. The, we, we still always planned to put it out on the console when it was going to be finalised and released, and um, obviously when KI came out on to the SKI Gold, it was cut back and it wasn't quite the same as what was out there in the arcade. Um, you had polygonal backgrounds in places and, and, and layered sprites and, and downscale down sprites. For me, I was just continuing to focus on to, um, getting KI done and then work on to KI2 as the next, next arcade game. So it, it didn't really affect my workflow. I, I don't think it affected the company. So, And we, we're all so busy with, with getting Donkey Kong out there. So. Well, Rare were growing, you know, a lot of this time, and obviously they made more hirings, and Sean and uh, Chris, you came on board. What were you working on initially then when you, when you joined the company? So you guys were working together, weren't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I arrived a few <laughs> weeks before Sean. So I get to speak first. No. Yeah. <laughs> the, <laughs> <Always> <laughs> with the six-week seniority. Uh, yeah, so when, when we first arrived, we get dumped up into a little room, and uh, you, get, you get stuck in front of uh, your, your indie, and you get given an instruction manual, two instruction manuals about this thick, of going, uh, going, and that's the instruction manual. Read that. Go and do something with it, and we'll come back. So you said they go, oh my god, the, it's like the it's like baptism a, by fire. Yeah, it was, it was like a couple of yellow pages worth of of instruction manual, which you run through, and you get your simple one triangle spinning around on the the screen. And then Sean came. I was very glad because I got up to Sean's office, and we have someone to be going. Oh my god, this is he's going. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was the same thing. You do two weeks in the incubator, which is like the, it's the attic at, at the old farmhouse, and it's south facing as well, so that you boil to death. And they've got these tiny little flies that plague you. So I just remember that bit and thinking, God, where have I come to? And you do your two weeks, and then somebody comes and has a look at what you've done. And if it's not rubbish, they go, okay. And you just get stuck on a team. So I just got stuck in an office with Chris, which was on the KI barn, 
but we 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 then look at what the guys were doing because we, they were in little cubicles with glass doors and, and and we were just afraid weren't we we just yeah. sat in there going I wonder what they're doing can we have a yeah. look dare we ask you know so you've got the guys doing ki and, and we were just given little jobs to do yeah, it was right at the end of ki gold so it was just about to come out and so everyone's feverishly working you go possibly don't want to <laughs> jump in and change anything at the moment but and then make course, a barrel fall over and then of course ki finished uh, we didn't do any real work on it ourselves we just got to play it at the end and then 12 tales was was the yeah, big thing you know well obviously we did a full panel yesterday about conquers um if, if you want to find out more about that i'll put it on our podcast next week but tell us a story about 12 tales and how did conquers bad fur day come out of that game then i suppose um we'd all been impressed by mario 64 so we all knew we were going to have to do a game in that vein um and so we started doing our usual thing of trying to reverse engineer everything that they'd done to figure out how it all worked and and we were going to make a sort of um the rare equivalent of mario 64 so just a platformer where you collected stuff and um what happened is banjo came along essentially because we were struggling kind of with the design not with the technical side of it we, we had a very technical team of people um, but the design side of it wasn't really coming anywhere and um, banjo turned up and we would have been competing with ourselves so you don't want two mario style platformers at once yeah so um so when we'd, we'd, we'd even gone to e3 with it, it was quite far in, in, into development as, as sean said it was technically there but it just wasn't quite cohesive as a as a as an overall product and banjo was just looking great so we were sitting there going right and we all sat down and had a beer and uh, <laughs> decided that maybe that we need to do something different and uh and that's where chris siva came from being an artist who he had an idea so look uh, give me a chance to be, be the designer on it i've got a, a a new take on what we can do with this so we um so chris went and uh, tim said right go and do the first the first thing give me an idea what it is so we put together the uh, the wasp scene where the where you go and steal the beehive and you bring it back and you get chased by the wasps and then the funny bone we said well at the end instead of just disappearing why don't we get a, a machine gun to come out and shoot the wasps in, in, instead of and, and that would be the big surprise at the end uh, and so we put that together got the cutscene of the, the shooting Tim came in and said he absolutely loved it uh, do more of that and then two years later he came back and went oh my god what yeah. did you do no, <laughs> it wasn't quite like that but it was the other, the other thing about that though is that was kind of do or die so if Tim had come in and not thought it was the funniest thing he'd seen I'm, we would have been canned at that point because we had to prove after the the rebrand of the game we had to really prove and we we didn't know it so much as a team but I think the guys at the top on the team the lead programmer Mark B and Chris Seaver knew that if that didn't go well, we'd have, we'd have been shipped out onto other teams. So it was a real crunch moment, and fortunately we passed it. So When a load of developers kind of left to go to Ape Wonder uh, and develop for Sony, what was the atmosphere like at the time? That was really weird, because nobody left Rare. Up until that point, I'd been there for, for perhaps two years. I, I couldn't recall anybody leaving. It's like being in the firm. You, yeah, once you were in, you <laughs> you're were in. in. You're in. Nobody leaves here. And um, in the box. yeah, <laughs> yeah. And essentially, when that happened, I think it was a it was a big it was a first big sort of shock. We had we had a couple of major sort of groups leave, and that was the first one. And um, I mean, for a lot of us, it worked out quite well because 
there was a noticeable bump in your salary, <laughs> which was nice, and, and people seemed to take more interest in trying to keep you. So all of a sudden it was like, you're not going to leave. You know, I remember being asked by my lead programmer, you're not going to leave, are you? You know, no, no, you know, I'm in the firm. <laughs> I'm going to stay for life. But well, was it a shock when the Microsoft buyout happened then? Did, did you see that coming? Or? Well, I, I think we could see something needed to happen. Um, we were getting into it. We, we got into a little bit of a rut, I think. It was like the, we, we'd entered this weird phase where we were doing prototype after prototype after prototype. And I don't think anyone really had that, the idea. Nothing was quite coming through going, yeah, that's the thing that we want to do. That's the, that's the next big thing. And we did so many prototypes. I mean, like about a year and a half, I remember, of just prototype after prototype, prototype, of, of, and no real decision being made. Uh, and it was going through a bit of difficult times. So we, there was like redundancies coming up and that sort of stuff. And I think we needed a cash injection to keep going because it was a super expensive building. You know, it, it's a really expensive place to run. And if the money's not coming in, you can't just keep doing that. Uh, and I, I also think that um, Chris and Tim were keen to, that people had been working really for a, a long time at Rare. We had, they, they'd given out share, share, you know, shares inside the company, sort of internal shares sort of thing. And they just wanted to give something back to the company get a cash injection, get something back to the, the, the people who'd, who'd put in a lot of time into the company. So all those things came together to, to when they decided to, um, to, to offer the company up. And, uh, and I think Microsoft were the, I mean, I, th I think ideally they want Nintendo to come in to, to have done it, but I don't think they were, um, I, th I imagine they were given first, first refusal on it, but um, and I don't think they were keen to have it exactly how Chris and Tim wanted it. Uh, and then it was offered up to a few other companies, and in the end, Microsoft just gave us a, an offer they couldn't refuse. So, uh, uh, and and they brought with them a, a lot of the stuff that that made a, a, a modern company, because the company was getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, but it was still being run, you know, just by people who'd started off from the bedrooms, and you know, they learned a lot as they'd gone along. But Microsoft brought a lot of stuff to the table of, of being able to manage a large company, and uh, although. It, They'd never really managed a uh, gaming stuff. They'd start Xbox come in, but it, they, they were still fairly new to that. So there was a little bit of getting, getting, you know, working the two different systems together and making them gel. So it took a bit of time to get that working. And they, they uh, would admit just as much themselves. It was a, they, they were learning, you know, at, at the same time. Uh, but overall, I'm pretty sure Rare wouldn't be here today if Microsoft hadn't come in. So. I think overall it was the right decision. To I make. have to say the bidding thing was a bit funny because there was there was was it EA, Activision, and yeah, and and Microsoft. Microsoft were kind of like hanging back to see what was going on, and um, EA dropped out for some reason. I, I I can't remember why. And Activision kept bidding, and Microsoft bidding, and Activision were in the lead, so it was like yeah, it's going to be Activision, and then Microsoft come along and they went right. <laughs> open their pockets doom. and it was like so much more than Activision that Activision just went oh my god and Microsoft won so there was this you know they might have been going like did 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 and then it was like whoop we win so um that was Microsoft well for the last 10 minutes or so we're going to hand over to you guys so if anyone's got any questions about um working at Rare Life at Rail, your favorite games just put your hand up and we'll run over with a microphone one down the front here Hello, thank you for a wonderful panel. Uh, this one goes out to you, uh, David Doak. Uh, 
In Goldeneye 007, uh, I've noticed that pretty much everything explodes. The alarms explode, the computer monitor explodes, even the friggin' chairs explode. <laughs> what, uh, why did that happen? Is it uh, because explosions are awesome? No, explosions are awesome. <laughs> I've never been in a real one, but... <laughs> um, I think one of the things with Goldeneye was that we were very keen to expand what happened in FPSs. So generally, the environments were, were, were quite static. Um, so I, mean, we, I think we kind of had this rule of thumb with, um, for the graphics, which was a third went on the backgrounds, a third went on the characters, and a third went on the props. So the props being all the... You know, crates and barrels and, and, and tables and stuff. I don't think the intention was to make, initially, to make just everything that it's made of Semtex, so it just goes up if you go, and if you, if you, if you, if you go leave it near a radiator or something. Um, I think, I'll, we were talking about this other day, I think what happened is that Steve Ellis had put in the particle, so at that time in games, particle effects were not a very common thing. I mean, any game now is just like layers and layers of particles and fancy stuff like that. Um, and so it was kind of done, for, done from scratch on, on, on the N64. So all of those, we used to call them the cornflakes. Those, when, when, they, when, it, when something explosion, you get the kind of like spiraling sprites coming out, counter-rotating. Um, and then there's the, the fire render on, on the top of it. And I think what probably happened was that when we put it in, or would see put it in, it was on all props so that everyone could just get a feel for it and what it was like. And then it was just, well, actually, it's quite fun that everything explodes because it, it also, I mean, a lot of these things, it's not, just the, it's not just the visual part of it. It actually changes the way the game plays. So, and, and also Goldeneye has this thing where if something explodes, the kind of the explosions perpetuate through the world in a, in a very kind of stepwise fashion. So you can have something that'll go off yeah, you, you know if that monitor's blown up there and if you're standing here, it's going to come, or that scientist is going to get killed by the explosion moving down. So I think they, they, they got left in as that. And, and, and there was also, I mean, there was an aesthetic thing as well, which is, I mean, we loved all the John Woo films and that was kind of like, particularly those gunfights in kind of like, there's the one with the, all the bird cages and stuff and there's just stuff flying everywhere. So it was, you know, and a big part of it from a game design point of view is it's, like, it's a consequential action response thing in, in the game world um, so you know it, it, it embodies the player because you know you're there and it's another thing to think about I'm, I'm, I'm really glad it stayed the way it does because it's very distinctive what I want to know is who did the motion capture for being shot in the ass? <laughs> so well that's I mean, one of the, the great well not unsung because he but, but Duncan Duncan Bothood Botwood, who was the, 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 the other designer in Goldeneye, Duncan did all of that motion capture. And at Rare, there were two, two, two ways of doing it. Well, uh, I think at the time, it was got for killer. There was, a, there was a motion capture system called Flock, which was just... It was, it was, it was, I think it had kind of like um, flex response things on all your joints and stuff. And, and, and it mag magnetic, magnetic probes or something. So it had this enormous, I think there was a big umbilical cord going into your back, and then this array of stuff, and it was, it was got for killer, and then you just discovered you, you couldn't possibly capture any kind no. of fighting move with it because it was too slow. You, you were, and also, it was, um, there was that many wires travelling up and down your body, and each, each limb would have a, um, a magnet in it which would rotate and pick up what, what your, your joint was doing with the X, Y, Z rotation, and so you put all that data onto the joints 
on your wireframe model and it was motion capturing and you were walking around in a spaghetti suit and it was very sweaty and very smelly but then you we, we upgraded to the camera system yeah so then it went from 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 that to visual stuff so with visual markers so like kind of like um, ping pong balls covered with highly reflective tape and stuff which is which is i mean now it's all gone on to photogrammetry and things and i mean now you can do motion capture um, i mean it's it's amazingly different but but duncan endured all of that I mean, and famously brett jones who did who, who who did a lot of the animation and and and, and work with duncan on it duncan would stand with his eyes closed and not know where he was going to get pushed over from so, so, that, so that's where you get a lot of these kind of reaction things and stuff but i think they're the getting shot in the ass and jumping around is duncan Bob so it's a bit like that robot that gets kicked all the time is it? yeah like, that's yeah. right it doesn't fight back yeah <laughs> Hello, thank you for... I like coming. your t-shirt. Thank you. <laughs> I had like a bunch of questions when I was driving here, so I had to pick one of them. One thing that stands out for Rare is their childish sense of humor <laughs> that they try to insert everywhere. So what's like your favorite thing that you wanted to include that got cut? We did at one point have a Hitler mustache, which you could wear as the, the teddies. We had different hats you could put on. So we had like a Himmler hat, had a little, a little Hitler moustache, and all these different ones. That, that didn't make it. I thought it was quite funny when we saw it, but it was, that did not make it. Um, I was um, having, uh, wondering about like a question to David Weiss here. Like you made one of the most uh, memorable or one of the most popular video game soundtracks of all time, and probably the best ones in my opinion. Uh, have you ever uh, like uh, been offered or considered to do like like uh, outside of video game industry like movie soundtracks as well or been offered to do that as well in there's a few projects coming up in the future that might be outside of the video game world but I can't talk about it so uh, <coughs> I'd, I'd have to shoot you but um, yes there, there are a couple of um, opportunities and, and stuff that I've already done that you'll probably find out about. And also, I'm, I've nearly finished my album, and that will be available next year, hopefully. So, um, is, that, is that your stamp album, Dave? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and, and Kevin's doing the graphics for it, so there'll, there'll be a combination of um, great artwork and um, hopefully some nice tunes as well, if I get my finger out. Well, guys, it's been incredible getting these inside stories from you know, such a legendary company. So thank you for joining us. Please give a big thank you to our panel. Thank you.